Should be good. All right, so I think we're live. So I'm Zach, if you don't know. I'm with Carl from Adhered Apologetics, and we are live with Pastor Mike Winger, and we are going to be discussing some difficult Bible passages today. So is there anything you want to say, Mike, before we get into it? And we are live. Um, before we get started, no, man, just uh, thanks for having me on. And uh, for those who don't know, uh, Adhered Apologetics, they're the ones who were involved in this, the really fun uh, Twitter apologetics tournament march madness tournament and they're the ones that put it up and it just kind of like got bigger and bigger i think what really started it was david wood making a video about it and uh me and david wood went against each other and somehow i i made it to the next round and um anyways it was a lot of fun and what was cool about it for me was it actually made a lot more people aware of my video content online and that was just like a, a really neat blessing and so when uh, zach asked me if i could be available for an interview i was like yeah man let's do that yeah definitely it's fun to see you guys go at it with those videos it was fun to watch for sure so i mean i guess we'll just get into it so we're just, the topic of tonight is just difficult bible passages so we're going to go through some different bible passages that a lot of skeptics will use to mock the bible or things like that and then mike's gonna just talk about them and Maybe I'll chip in, but Mike's a lot smarter than me at this, so we'll see. So the first passage is in Genesis 9, where we're talking about Lot's daughters, and they sleep with Lot to become pregnant. So I'm just curious on your take on it, Mike. Um, okay, I, I think it's Genesis 19 um, oh, that I'm you're, you're referring to there. And so it, this is like a, I can understand. I mean, we, I remember reading this passage, and especially, okay, let me back up. You're sitting in a Bible study, right? And you're thinking, I, I just, I really want to get fed. Like, I just want something to apply to my life today. And you come to Genesis 19 and you're reading about Lot after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, him and his daughters, they hide in a cave and then his daughters get him drunk. And this is sensitive content. This isn't for kids right now, but, but they get him drunk and then they sleep with him in order to become pregnant. And then that pregnancy leads to uh, a couple different groups that end up being a thorn in the side of Israel later on. So this is not like, you know, the heartwarming Bible passage, admittedly, it's not. But this is, for me as a pastor, I want to say to other teachers and people studying the Bible, we we can't always be like, whatever I whatever chapter I open to, I want to find heartwarming truisms that can help me get through my day. Because we're, we're just sort of ripping out of the Bible so much of what God is actually revealing to us because it doesn't fit into what our desires or expectations were. And um, so in this passage, what happens? Um, I, I guess I'll just read the verses that you sent me. Um, so it starts in verse 30 of Genesis 19. It says, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, our father's old and there's no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine. The older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night, I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine in that night also. And the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. And then it, it goes on. Um, so let me start like with 
with it this way, Zach, what were your questions? Like, what are the things that, that jump to your mind as you hear that passage? Well, I mean, I think you kind of addressed it a little bit, but it's just when you look at the Bible for like trying to find like moral truths, like trying to develop your theology, like it's just to me, I look at this passage and it just, it seems a little strange, you know, like that. And then they become descendants of a tribe of people that exist in the Bible. So it's just, just a little strange, I think. And I don't know, people might, I mean, not necessarily me, but people will look at this and poke fun of the Bible and say, hey, there's people in the Bible doing these strange things. So why should we look at the Bible for morality? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So this, this comes to um, a really simple biblical interpretation rule that we should all have ready in our minds when we're studying a passage. That is the Bible um, records things which the Bible says are wrong. And this is most certainly one of those events, right? Like this is obviously wrong. And the Bible's recording that it happened, but yet scripture will condemn this sort of behavior, both the drunkenness and the incest. It condemns these things. Um, why is it in the passage? Well, for maybe for a few reasons. Um, first off, I'll just say it's showing the depravity of Sodom had impacted the daughters of Lot. And there's something to be learning there for parents. You know, is that, um, you know, you may feel like you're okay and you're not being impacted by the worldliness around you, but perhaps your kids are. I'm um, not to say we have to just totally, we're not supposed to hide in a cave exactly. That's not the suggestion I'm making, um, mm. but we should be aware of the impact it's having around them. The stuff that they're doing is is stuff that they certainly learned in Sodom, you know, and um, and so, yeah, the, another reason why this might be in here is because their kids become important characters in later historical events recorded in the text of the Bible. So it's showing you the connection from one to the next that the, that these people groups had this beginning. Um, that's that's one of the reasons why it's in there. So the impact of an ungodly community and individuals and families, that's something we can learn from this. The Bible clearly condemns this behavior. And I, let me see, there's a way people put this. It's um, the Bible describes what it does not proscribe um, or prescribe. There you go, prescribe. <laughs> um, so that that's that's the basic idea here. We have to be able to look at the text and go, oh yeah, this was a, this was a terrible wrong thing. Um, there's other things people get hung up on because I wasn't sure what you'd ask me about. Um, they're like, was there really no males around that they could have married? Well, that's not <laughs> the case. I mean, obviously there's a town nearby named Zoar, but they're afraid to have relations with the town. We're not told why. Maybe because they thought Lot was cursed and his family was cursed and that's what happened to Sodom. It could be a lot of reasons why. Um, so they have relations with them. They seem to be buying and selling and trading with them, but they're not able to have like um, a marital relation with them. That's just not going to happen. And so then they go and they do this. Yeah. So um, we look at it. We, we instead of highlighting these are the examples we have, we highlight this is a bad example we have. And that's why it's in the text. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think you did an awesome job going through that. So do you want to move on to the next one? Sure. All right. So, I mean, I could read the full chapter if you want, but I mean, I sent it to you. Judges 19. So this is a story that is considered brutal and terrible in the Bible. And it's a little gross when I read it myself. So just a short summary of it. A man and his concubine are standing in the town of Gibeah overnight, a crowd wanting to have sex with the man. And they send he sends his concubine instead, and they rape his concubine to death. Uh, he chops up her body and sends the pieces to the Israelites so they can see what's done. So it's just a short summary actually found online of the chapter. So do you want me to read the whole thing or do you want us to kind of go from there? No. And, and so it's Judges 19 for anybody who wants to go check it out. This passage is brutal 
And um, my thought is that it's supposed to feel that way. Um, it's intentionally brutal, but we can have a problem when we're looking at the passage and like with the Genesis one, we're looking for a good guy. Um, now I, I, I taught through the book of Judges. It's not online, it's not available, it's not recorded or anything, but I taught through the book of Judges years ago with the college group at my church. And I noticed as, you know, you when you teach a book, it's like you take each passage one at a time, you, you grow in your understanding of the flow of the book a lot more. I noticed that in Judges, things just keep getting worse. People keep getting worse. And even the judges themselves keep getting worse. Like we have Gideon, he seems to start well, and he seems to end not well. We have Jephthah, he starts well, he ends not well at all. We have Samson, he doesn't even really start well, right? By the time we get to Samson, it's like, come on, man. And you're like at a point where you just, you're looking for a good guy and there isn't one. There isn't even someone to root for in the story at that point. And that is that is kind of the theme of the book of Judges if, as you go through the theme. And when you know the theme, you understand how this passage fits into what God's communicating to us in this book. So uh, Judges 21, 25, the end of the whole book, the last verse, and it's not long after these events in verse uh, chapter 19. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the theme through the book of Judges. We have that phrase where they did what was right in their own eyes. There's no king and how it, it was a bad thing. It led them into sin and then God judged them or punished them rather with their enemies coming in. And then he brings a deliverer who helps them. But it's, 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 it's a cycle like this. Like we disobey God, we're judged. We call upon him. He, he brings a, a deliverer. But the cycle gets lower every time it goes around. And so it's like seven cycles in the book of Judges. By the time you hit Judges 19, you're at the lowest of the low just the lowest of the low. So that's why Judges 19 verse one, it starts out with this idea and it came about in those days, there was no king in Israel. And then it tells a story, the guy, he, he takes a concubine, shouldn't have done that. She cheats on him, she prostitutes herself, she shouldn't have done that. He gets her back and then he's being manipulated by her dad and he, and he escapes the manipulation of her father and he flees. And this is really interesting, uh, Judges 19 verse 11 and 12, when they're fleeing her dad, he's trying to look for a place to stay. And it says they were near Jebus, or which is uh, the Jebusites, which is actually Jerusalem, I think. Um, but it was not controlled by the Israelites at the time. So Judges 1911, when they were near Jebus, Jebus, the day was almost gone. And the servant said to his master, please come and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And he's like, no way. It says, however, his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. So the reason why this, this guy with his concubine goes to Gibeah is because he wants to be with the Israelites, not with the foreigners. The ironic thing is he probably would have been safer with the non-Israelites. That's how bad the Israelites were at this point. And that's what this passage is drawing out. Just the failure and wickedness of Israel at the time. Um, so he goes to Gibeah. There's no safety there. There's no brotherhood there to them. He's just a stranger and they're going to have sport with him and with his with his concubine. And um, when she gets killed, he responds after she gets killed, the story you already shared. He responds by uh, taking her. She's already dead at this point, but he takes her body and cuts her up in pieces and sends the pieces out to different locations within the land of Israel. The idea here is and there's no postal service, right? He's sending them out to say, and no news service for that matter, to say, look at how low it has gone in Gibeah. They did this to a fellow Israelite. I went there for, for safety and they did this to me and they did this to her. Um, now, I'm not saying what this guy did was good and neither is judges. It's just recording a brutal event, right? 
Israel responds by rising up in anger and they attack this city of Gibeah and it almost destroys the Benjamites. And the end of the, the whole rest of the book of Judges is dealing with the, the, a war that gets started because of what happened with this man and his concubine. The point of okay. it is this. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, sorry. The point of it is this, to give you all, I give you all the background. Everybody in this story is messed up. Every single person is messed up. That's the point. And it just causes mob actions with all kinds of evil consequences. The point is Israel, a nation chosen by God, given good laws, given the land, and yet they fail to obey God. And this is, this is where we're marching towards Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the, the shocking parts of Judges 19 are meant to tell us about the shocking reality of the sin of man and the need we have for Jesus. And Judges is a long march to the depravity of man. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that's awesome. I really like your point about how you're talking about how the Bible records events, but it doesn't mean that those events are actually right. I think that's a really great point to make and a great point to remember. So the last Old Testament passage that I, we're going to talk about is Ezekiel 23. So even when I read this story, I get a little bit confused with what's going on here. So there's about story about two women and prostitution and God's judgment on them. Uh, I mean, I could read the passage if you want, but I don't know if you want to just kind of talk about what's going on here. Yeah, I think I can summarize it for us real well. Um, so the passage follows the story of two prostitutes, like you said. And the question is, yeah, what, what is going on with these two prostitutes in the middle of Ezekiel 23? And the truth is they're not real women. They're actually, um, they're, they're symbolic of the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. So after, after David's time, after Solomon's time, the kingdom split into two pieces. You have the Northern Kingdom and the capital of the Northern Kingdom was a city called Samaria. The capital of the Southern Kingdom was a city called, you probably know this, right? Uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right? Okay, so Jerusalem is that capital. So he takes those two capital cities, Samaria and Jerusalem, and he talks about them like women. And you'll notice in the text, a lot of times God deals with Israel, talks about it like it's a her. We do this with nations today uh, as well. So Ezekiel 23 verse 4, he says about these two, these two prostitutes, he says their names were Ahola the elder and Aholabah, her sister. So he gives them these two names, but then he explains what he means. And they became mine and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Samaria is Ahola and Jerusalem is Aholabah. So it's Samaria, the city, the capital of the Northern Kingdom, that's Ahola. Jerusalem, the capital of the Southern Kingdom, that's Aholabah. Now those names, Aloha, uh, or uh, Aloha, that's different. That's Hawaiian, right? Uh, <laughs> Ahola. It means her own tabernacle and Aholabah means my tabernacle is in her. And so when you look at the, uh, the nature of the Southern and Northern kingdoms, this makes a lot of sense because the Northern kingdom, she has her own tabernacle. That's not where the temple was, right? But they set up a, a false tabernacle up in the Northern kingdom and had the worship of these basically apostate worship. They didn't want their people going to Jerusalem for worship because the kingdom had been split where the temple was. So they set up these false tabernacles in the Northern kingdom. So God's pointing that out. He goes, Samaria, they were apostate. They started fa basically false religion in God's name. And then Aholabah, my temple, my tabernacle's in her. That's a statement. Hey, Jerusalem, that's where God's actual temple is. So then he goes on in, in the passage as you read it. He talks about how uh, the northern kingdom, how they came from Egypt, just like Israel. She came from Egypt and then decided to prostitute herself to these other nations. I want to be like the nations around me. I want to sin like the world around me and not be faithful to God. And then God used those nations to judge her. And the terminology is really graphic. 
right? It's very graphic and it's it's intended to be. It should shock us because God wants us to be as shocked about sin as he is, I think is the point. Um, then it talks about the Southern kingdom after it does to the Northern and how they're going to suffer the same judgment because they've become even worse than the Northern kingdom. And that's the whole context of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is like this exilic prophet when the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy the Southern kingdom. Um, so the language is graphic. It's meant to be so because it's showing us how detestable and how wrong this stuff was. So he takes it and he turns it into adultery and discuss uh, describes the adulterous behavior of people who reject God and embrace other things. So sometimes the job of the prophets was um, to help people become aware of their sin. I know for me personally, um, I'm more aware of my sin now than I was when I was younger. And the more I walk with Christ, the more I become aware of the wickedness of my own sins. And so I think that that's what Ezekiel's doing is he's drawing out the depravity of sin. And so it's it's tough it's a tough passage to swallow, but it's there to show us sin that we might become repentant over those kinds of issues. I hope you're still there. Your, your, your picture froze. <laughs> I wonder if I'm still there. I'm going to check the live stream, see if anything's going on. It looks like I'm still, I'm still alive. I, I, I don't think you are anymore. Well, hey, everybody. So um, I'm taking over Zach's YouTube channel. Welcome to Adherent Apologetics, run by uh, Pastor Mike Winger today. And um, I could just go to the next passage, I guess. But I really would like to have Zach back. It's better with Zach. How are you guys doing today? Let me check out the live chat while I'm waiting to see if Zach is back. Who's, who's, who's with us? Who is with us today? I see. Um, so Sarah Zimmerman, thank you for um being there to do the modding helping out with stuff in case of any trollish behavior that might go on down there i see jmd apologetics robin banks nice glad to have you guys join all right well all i can say to zach is if you're watching the live stream zach try your link close your thing and re-sign into the google hangout um, and see if uh see if that works for you i'll go ahead and do the next passage it's matthew 548 um, this passage is where Jesus says, uh, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the statement. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I think that Zach's question, I was going to let him share it, but I think his question is like, what do you mean be perfect? Like, how am I supposed to be perfect? Um, and that the way that it sounds when you take it out of context, it could sound like we're saying, this is what you have to do to gain eternal life. Jesus is saying you have to be absolutely perfect. So I'll share a few things on this while we're waiting to see if Zach might be able to rejoin us. Let's see. He lot. Okay. Yeah. Just a second, guys. This is, by the way, this is Zach's very first live stream ever. So he's just kind of figuring it out and there's always kinks initially. Um, I'm going to say, try to sign back in so that he might be able to rejoin us. All right. So Matthew 548, uh, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Is that you, buddy? Ah, uh, hey, Mike. <laughs> I took over your channel. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll take it. I mean, if you want to. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. I have no. I was about to share on Matthew five forty eight. Crashed. I have no idea. It's probably just your internet connection's getting a little pushed right now. Yeah. You hear me? Yep. Yeah. So on the passage in Matthew five forty eight, um, it says, uh, "Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." My uh, before I answered 
you know, explain the passage I wanted to ask, and I'm glad you're back. What was your question about this? Like, how would you put a question about this passage? Well, I mean, this is just something I found when I researched. Um, I think it's just, I mean, personally, I think it's a little bit taken out of context, but I mean, Jesus is telling them to be perfect, something he's, that people obviously cannot do. So I'm just wondering why you think Jesus would tell them to be perfect if he, they know that he can't be, they can't be. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's walk through it a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll say this, that in the passage, it makes it sound like perfection is required of me if I'm going to be saved or going to go to heaven, you know, have eternal life. And in the same, you know, teaching passage in Matthew 520, same like Sermon on the Mount, he says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says this, then later he goes, you have to be perfect. So it does seem like the context is where Jesus is saying like, you have to be perfect in order to get to heaven or in order to be have eternal life would be one way to put it. I think though, that this is kind of exactly what Jesus is saying. He's showing us what the standard is for righteousness to get us into the kingdom of heaven. It's not be a good person. It's be perfect, absolutely perfect. So this is what Romans 3.20 says. It says, by the works of the, the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's unpacking the goodness of the law. And he's saying basically, hey, um, you aren't good enough. You need to be perfect. You, you, you've lowered the bar. You've made, I go to church. I read my Bible. Like that's good enough for you, but you have to be perfect. So he's raising the bar. He's raising the bar. So to this, the response is um, that the way we will be saved is to get saved by grace, not by those works. The way I will achieve perfection is through the perfection of Christ, him doing it on my behalf. He fulfills the law. He dies for my sins. He imputes his righteousness to me. And that's how I will achieve perfection by his righteousness, not by my own. So okay, the yeah. transformation of our lives begins when we get saved. I'm sorry, go ahead question for you there like a follow-up question is that fine yeah yeah please do oh shoot i think i lost you i hear you you there yeah oh, my internet kind of figured it out uh do, i have like a kind of follow-up question off that do you mind yeah please do yeah go ahead so what so if we have to be perfect to enter the presence of god what about elijah ascending to heaven in the old testament um well uh oh, I just I hate when I do that. I hit the thing that delete that ruins all my stuff. Um, sometimes when you move windows around, all your windows minimize. Yeah, I just yeah. That. Okay, so that's a good question. Elijah ascending into heaven. Um, well, one could suggest that he wasn't entering into eternal life based upon his good works when that happened. Mm -hmm. Right, he ascended, but did he did he gain eternal life by his good works? Or was it grace, just like it was with Abraham? I, I would think that everybody who has ever been saved is by the grace of Christ, even retroactively, you know, from before the time of the cross or after the time of the cross. Yeah. So, but I would want to think about that some more. Um, I'm trying to think right now. I've, I've given that some thought, but it's not coming to my head right now. As far as Elijah and, um, depending on your eschatology, some think that Elijah, while he was taken up, he is yet uh, going to in the future return and be one of the witnesses in Revelation and that he might um, still be suffering an actual future death, meaning that the taken up thing is a temporary thing, not a eternal life thing. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, meaning that it wouldn't really 
correlate to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew. Awesome. Um, so you uh, move on to the Mark passage. I'll just read the passage. So if you're listening, Mark 10, 17 through 22, where this is someone talking, and Jesus started on his way, and a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except for God alone. So I think there's multiple questions here, but first off, what do you think Jesus, if Jesus is the son of God and the perfect sacrifice, what is, is he saying here when no one is good except God alone? Because, I mean, it seems like, at least if you read it literally, he's excluding himself from that. Um, well, I think that you might be reading into the text if you say that Jesus is excluding himself from that. So here's the, the next question is, when Jesus says that God is something, is he saying that he is not that thing? Mm -hmm. And well, I think we, it's very clear, like take the whole of scripture, that Jesus is God. He's actually specifically called God, you know, like Titus 2.13 and stuff, where we have uh, we have these statements in 1 Peter, Jesus is He's God. He is actually in John six. He's he's the one whom Isaiah saw his glory and wrote of him. So this person would include Jesus. Actually, when we read the passage and we think it's about the goodness of Jesus, I think we miss the point of the passage. Jesus is directing it to um, the discussion of what is this guy who thinks he's a good person? What does he really think good is? I think that that's the actual issue. Um, so he thinks he's good. The guy thinks he's good. Jesus then says, um, when he calls him good teacher, Christ knows the guy's heart. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Remember the question he asked, how do I get eternal life? Mm -hmm. Okay, he thinks he's gonna earn it on his own goodness. Jesus says to him, okay, you wanna earn it on your goodness? Well, here's what you do. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And then, then the man says, teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I don't know about you, man. Zach, have you always honored your father and mother? Always. always. No, I'm just kidding. No, definitely I, not. One time I was witnessing, we did a mission trip to Utah and I was witnessing and I was talking to people through like a good person examination. Like, and we're talking to, I was talking to a Mormon gentleman and he'd been Mormon for his whole life. You know, we were in a town that was like 96% Mormon population. So it's just very uh, strong LDS presence there. And I walked him through the good person test. I just walked him through the commandments. Have you always ever stolen anything? And he goes, no, never. And I was the first guy I've ever talked to who's like, never, nothing, ever. And I was like, you ever looked with lust? And he goes, no, why would I? And he put his arm around his wife and he goes, why would I? I have a beautiful wife. And I thought, this guy's delusional, you know? <laughs> never. Um, and that I think is kind of the thing he's, Jesus is encountering with this guy. He thinks he's a good person. He's like, of course I've obeyed those things. But he has like a diminished view of what obedience to those things actually means. So Jesus, he highlights one issue that the man has that he's not aware of. And that is his love of money. So in verse 21, Jesus looks at him and he says, he loves him. And he says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So it's interesting is Jesus doesn't even say, you're just going to give it all up. It's going to be gone. He's like, you'll have even more for eternity. You're temporarily given a money. You'll have it for eternity. But the man doesn't because his heart is wrapped up in his money. And he doesn't realize that he has this idol going on. So Jesus points out one sin issue with, with the, uh, the request to go sell all that you have. And through that, hopefully the man realizes that he's not good. Like he thinks he is, you know, and uh, some of the, 
the the work that Jesus is doing in the gospels is helping people realize that their righteousness isn't going to cut it. And then Paul explains this in great detail in Romans. You know, your righteousness is not enough. Jew and Gentile, they're all condemned. They're all under sin. And we need to be saved freely by the grace of Christ. Yeah, so Jesus is driving people towards that. Now, I think that if you keep reading the passage, Jesus makes the statement about goodness and entering eternal life even stronger. If you just read the next verse, it goes uh, in verse 23 of Mark 10. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Could you imagine hearing him say that? You'd be like, wow. Yeah. And he says, it says the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it? How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And now it's about everybody. It's not even just about the rich people. It's hard for anybody. Mm -hmm. And he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which doesn't happen, by the way, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And their question's really insightful because they're not even saying what rich guy can be saved. They're like, who of anyone can be saved if this is the standard, if it's that high, Jesus? And Jesus looks at them and says in verse 27, with people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. He's saying that through their own efforts of goodness, they cannot be saved. Why? Because perfection is the standard and they all fall short, but God will make a way. So Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is the way. It's, it's just a non-standard it's not the normal way that we preach the gospel where i where i push somebody on the fact that they're um that they're not meeting the standards they think they're meeting and then i help them realize that yep there is no way for you therefore get desperate you need jesus now it should be a standard way of preaching the gospel <laughs> but it's not generally how we hear it right we usually hear like god loves you he's got a wonderful plan for you but we don't hear about sin because people get offended by that um, but that was how Jesus seemed to deal with the gospel. It was he focused on the main issue of sin and his um, his provision for it. Yeah, I think that's an amazing breakdown of the passage. So, man, we flew through those. That was only like 30 minutes. Nice. Pretty amazing. Um, so I mean, we could stop now or there's some questions that were like left in the chat. I don't know if you'd want to go through some sure. of the questions. We can do okay. that if you like. Okay, so I'll just go through some of them then. And then, so I'll just start with, Robin Banks, she talks, she says, I was curious about Ezekiel, she says 417, I think, where God tells him to feed people bread made out of human excrement. So, I mean, I guess I'll pull up the passage in Ezekiel 417. Yeah, so this is this is um, a passage, if I can go off memory here. It's not that Ezekiel has to uh, feed anyone else any bread made by human excrement. But um, Ezekiel, as a prophet, God turned his life multiple times into like, a living picture. It was like um, uh, Ezekiel, I want you to lay on one side in public. He would lay down on one side and he'd preach while laying down to talk about how Jerusalem would get like besieged for that many days, as many days as he was laying down. It was really like people would, would walk up like, what's Ezekiel doing now? What is this weird guy doing now? It would draw attention to him. It's kind of like a, a Ray Comfort goes in into uh, to preach and he has like some kind of giant monkey suit. It just draws all this attention. Ezekiel does this on several occasions. In this passage, when he's like, I want you to, to take bread and I want you to use dried human poop as the fuel, which you, you know, people, you, you know, cowboys back in the day in the, in the West, they would use dried cow poop as fuel. This was actually not uncommon, but to the Jewish mindset, it's just, oh, that's unclean. It's wrong, you know, especially if it's human, it's even worse. Ezekiel complains. He's like, oh God, please don't make me do that. And God makes it easier for you. He goes, okay, you don't have to use human. 
but he wants to draw a picture that's visceral that shows people that God is going to bring them so low. So Ezekiel, though, what he's doing is he's standing here warning the Israelites that they might repent. He's like, look at me, look at my state. This is what will happen to you. Um, yeah, that's kind of the basic idea. Okay, yeah, it's a great explanation. Uh, next question is from John Dunphy. He says, how about 1 Samuel 15, where God apparently commands babies to be killed by the sword? And according to Skylar Fiction, apparently, that's actually uh, just a little side note. That's a really fascinating conversation you had with Skylar a while back. I watched a little yeah. bit of that, so that's awesome. So, yeah. Well, I mean, on, on one side, I'll say this because it's because it's so public, and I don't want to be rude or anything, but um, my impression and my experience with with Skylar Fiction is that he doesn't care about the context and the right meaning of a verse. He takes verses out of context. Uh, for his agenda, the same way that like uh, the Mormon church does or or, other, or a cult group does, he just does it from the atheist perspective, wanting to hate the Bible as much as possible. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, but as far as 1 Samuel 15, uh, especially because this is where I'm going to want to answer very thoughtfully and carefully and not make yeah. sure I'm miss dotting and I'm crossing a T because it's a, it's a target passage for skeptics and I don't have anything fresh on my mind for it. So I will say um, absolutely there's, good explanations and answers. I don't want to muddy that up because it's not fresh in my mind because I wasn't prepared to answer that question. Um, I think in my discussion with Skylar, it may have come up and I I was fresh in my mind at the time if, if it did because I'd been studying on these things, but I don't want to rely on my memory, my faulty memory and yeah. then have it become the highlight moment where because they guys all want to watch these videos and take clips and make videos of me to try to get me to say things I don't mean. <laughs> it's just the reality <laughs> of it. Yeah, definitely. I completely understand. Yeah, I, I really, I mean, I guess going off on track, but I really respect you for that. You're not going to just go dive into something unless you have a really educated opinion on it. So it's, that's awesome. Uh, so let's go into some more questions. Samuel Park says, can you talk about how to interpret the vengeance against the Midianites in Numbers 31? So I'm looking here at the Bible to see what's going on here uh it says numbers 31 7 they attacked midian as the lord had commanded moses and they killed all the men five of the kings died they killed balaam of br with the sword they captured the women and children seized the cattle and flocks and plundered all the wealth and destroyed so basically like total destruction so mm -hmm. i mean yeah yeah um well god i mean god's using them the short answer is god is using them to judge the midianites for the wickedness of the midianites and that's the basic theme when it comes to the people of israel coming into the land of israel and getting the promised land and the current inhabitants there were they were warned they had time to repent they had hundreds of years actually till their sin was filled up the scripture says so we're not just saying oh israel wants the land i mean according to the scripture this is god's actual judgment upon them and the midianites um, probably the thing that draws people's attention the most, I think, from this passage, if I remember right, is is the issue of the women. And my buddy, John McRae over at What Do You Mean? He actually just did a video on this exact passage, on this exact topic. And mm -hmm. he did three videos on the topic of slavery and the Bible. And this was, I mean, it's not exactly about the issue of slavery, but it's but it was related because the video he's responding to from Cosmic Skeptic it went into this. John did such a good job on that that I would actually refer you guys to his video. I don't know if you if you could pull that up or someone could put it in the chat. It's his like third video responding to Cosmic Skeptic and he goes through these things in great detail. Um, the uh, Yeah, the, the short version is that. I, and here's the thing. 
I will, I will share this about a lot of these passages. There's one concept that becomes really important is if you have an unbiblical view of man, if you think man is basically morally good and we have like these sort of inalienable rights that not even God is allowed to judge me. And a lot of people have this view, whether they admit it or not, they have this weird, it's almost like I'm God and God's my servant, right? And um, and he can't judge me. I'll judge him though. I'll say, you shouldn't have done that, God. The insanity of this, I, I don't understand how someone could look at God and be like, God did that and I have a problem with it. I think that the only rational position is to say, if God did that and I have a problem with it, I must be viewing it wrong. This is This is just good reason. It's just good sense. But for those who approach the scriptures, and it does happen sometimes, and they feel like if I can't explain everything that happens in a way that makes people happy with me, then I have, then, you know, then I'm, then I'm, my Christianity is in danger or something like that. This fails the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God's the maker and creator and sustainer of all things. And he has a right to judge his creatures and his creation. What would be bad is if these things were happening apart from God's judgment. But if God is the one doing the judging, then that changes our our perception of the scenario entirely because he is the judge of all the earth and rightly so. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important thing. And this is something I'll never get an atheist to agree with me on, right? Mm -hmm. I, I've asked the question, I've talked to skeptics where I go, they're an atheist in particular, and I say, hey, it, you know, let's say that God exists, you know, try to get them to at least yeah. think this through. Let's say God exists and he creates the whole universe and all the people in it, and he's holy and we're sinners, and he decides he's going to judge sinners, is anything wrong with him doing that? And I've never heard anyone make a case for how they could say God is an error for bringing judgment. If anything, I think it shows that we are, we're wrong, we're sinners, we have sin issues. And I think that's um, uh, fundamentally what, uh, what it's we call it our biblical anthropology of man we should view man rightly as not the holy god don't mess with us we're good people but rather as we are fallen fallen people who are in desperate need of god's grace yeah yeah definitely uh i mean we could go through some more questions i just want to make sure you said like 7 30 right or yes 4 30 your time i don't want to hold you too long yeah yeah I, I don't have too much longer yeah Okay, no problem. So, I mean, you know, do you mind going through a few more questions? Or? No, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question comes from David Gorley. He says, "Can Mike talk about in the garden? I think after the fall, it says you then the Lord." You, you cut out there halfway through the question. Oh, I apologize. It said, "Can Mike talk about Genesis three twenty two, please?" So, I mean, I can just read it. It says, "Then the Lord said, look at look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil." What if they reach out? Yeah, cutting out again there. Did so you, oh, did I, you, said, you said, what if they reach out? And take fruit from the tree of life and eat it, then they will live forever. Mm -hmm. So that's the verse. I think it's talking about the yeah. tree, obviously, Adam and Eve ate from. So Yeah, there were two trees in the garden, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of, and the tree of life. And... They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they're forbidden from eating the tree of, of the tree of life, that they would have eternal life now in this state of this sin. Uh, when you get to Revelation, we have actually the tree of life being restored to us. The idea is that what, what fell in the fall has been restored through Jesus Christ. Um, 
but that's the idea is like okay you you've you've sinned you don't get eternal life now it's like what's interesting too is that this theology is in the beginning of the bible um some guys will like to suggest that the theology is developing really slowly and like there's different theologies but all of the essential theological points in the scriptures start in the book of genesis and this is one of those you know sin and death that's the beginning of it right there um i don't know what other question he might have about it though Okay. Um, actually, I just noticed his other comment. He says, so the Lord says he knows good and evil in this verse. And now with Adam and Eve's disobedience, they also do. So is the knowledge of evil not wrong, but what you do, but what you do with that knowledge is what is sin evil? Okay. Um, let me, I'm not sure how to, how to best answer that question. Um, yeah. he has become like one of us to know good and evil. So there's like an awareness of, of moral dilemmas of, mm. of what, of what's right and what's wrong. There isn't just an innocence because of an ignorance, but rather now I'm exposed to all of the potential temptations. Now God is aware of all that stuff. He has no lack in his knowledge of those things, but he's not tempted by sin, but me being, and here's where I'm going to venture out into a guess. This is a guess. What I'm sharing, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> I don't want to build a whole theology off of a guess, but I'm trying to work through something. Um, is that the, the very nature of Adam and Eve being entities other than God means that they're going to be having these opportunities to do things, maybe even desires to do things that are against God. And at one point, he's protecting them from that with some kind of ignorance that keeps them innocent. But, but they say, no, we, we want, I want to partake of this, this garden, this eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so now it's like their their ego is in the in the in the sense of self is being set against even each other against the world around them maybe even against God and it's going to be a problem. He foresees that now now that they've chosen this path they're going to be sinning. Um, I think there's a ton more that can be shared there. I, forgive me if that didn't make enough sense. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. these concepts I, I I'll sit and have to think about it for a while to go. How do I break it down? So it's not just in my head, but I can get it out for others. But uh, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, Utopia Buster says it's kind of a broad question, but will evil exist in hell? Um, will evil exist in hell? I don't know if we can. Okay, I think that's a very challenging question because let's start with this: um, What exactly is evil? Mm -hmm. And is evil something that exists? Well, some people, they, and not that Utopia Buster thinks this, but some people think of evil as if it's like, like almost like this invisible substance that's like on certain people or on certain things. And that's how they talk about evil. So then they're like, well, what made evil? What created evil? As if it had to be like created, like the way someone creates like a CD player, like poof, now they exist, you know? Um, but rather evil is, a, I view evil as a quality, not a substance. And so if a person is continuing to be sinful in their heart and mind, in that sense, evil is still happening, but it's isolated, it's quarantined, it's it's not happening outside of that person, basically. Uh, I think that would be my that would be my view tentatively on that. I think it's really okay. an interesting question. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next question says, um, how do you explain Matthew's erroneous use of the Hebrew Bible, Matthew two fifteen, Hosea eleven one? Um, are you familiar? I'm actually know what he's talking about there, where he says that Matthew's yeah. misquoting Micah. Wait, say that. Oh again. wait, maybe it's the wrong. I'm thinking of a different passage. His question is, 
Yeah, what version? How do you explain uh, Matthew two fifteen slash Hosea one eleven? So oh, I have to look. Um, actually, I have a video where I go into this in detail, um, and mm -hmm. it's it's in my Jesus in the Old Testament series, and. We do, I did a whole video, it's like a 22 part series, but one video in particular is I went through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and we just analyzed how Matthew uses the term fulfilled, right? How he uses the term fulfilled as he does in Matthew 2.15 and, uh, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Now this particular passage, um, it's in Hosea, and Hosea 11.1, 1 it seems pretty clear, it's talking about Israel. God called Israel out of Egypt. And this is talking about the Exodus, right? Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Now, what some people do is they go, ha, it's not a direct fulfillment. So Matthew is twisting the scriptures. And here I just say, slow, slow your horses there, big boy. You know, like you don't, um, Matthew's not a fool, okay? Matthew is so well acquainted with the scriptures and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there's more to it than what you're thinking. And we think of prophecy as just having one, being only in one category is direct, clear fulfillment. Whereas Matthew, he has some of those direct, clear fulfillments. He has some that are more typological fulfillments. And we, and in that series I did on Jesus in the Old Testament, when I come to this Matthew passage, I trace through various passages in the Old Testament where we show that, that the Messiah, the coming Messiah is like the better Israel, just like he's the better David, he's the better Moses, he's the better Israel as well. And so some of the themes about Israel in the Old Testament are, are seen as applicable to Messiah. Uh, and that's what Matthew's getting at. It's actually just that Matthew is, is a better, is a deeper Bible study than a cursory reading gives us. And um, I get into that in that, in that, um, in that particular one. It's, it's common to hear people say that uh, Matthew or these, these apostles, they, they just, they just, you know, willy nilly just misuse the scriptures. But when you study the passage carefully, you'll see it's brilliant. It's not foolish. It's just us who are foolish when we too quickly discount these things. Because uh, what God has given us in the scripture is literary genius. It's brilliance. And the uh, that's why I love that series, Jesus in the Old Testament. Man, I've, I so enjoyed studying for that and getting to teach it. Um, yeah, really neat stuff. Yeah. Um... I think it's a great breakdown. I really important and put it into context. So yeah. I, I lost yeah. part of what you said there. I was like, I don't know uh, if it's just me that lost it or everybody else or not. Uh, it's me, but... I think it's me. Uh, my internet. I don't know. But I was just giving you credit because I really appreciate how you really look at a Bible passage in context. So I think this will probably be the last question because of time. But the question says, oh, shoot, totally lost it. Um, oh, here it is. It says, it's from DH. He says, why would God say to Cain that he can overcome sin if Christians think the only way to be reconciled is to believe in Jesus? Okay, great question. Um, so overcoming one individual temptation moment is not the same thing as being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So I can fight against sin in, in, in an individual instance and overcome. Even non-believers can do this. It doesn't mean that they'll never sin. It doesn't mean that they're sinless, but they certainly have real decisions to make and they're able to, to not do something that they might be tempted to do. Um, it's certainly uh, different when you get saved and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit changes how this interaction happens between the flesh and, this, and, and all that and the spirit. But, um, but yeah, but that's radically different than what happens when someone comes to Christ. 
and they are washed of the guilt of their sin. And while we still have sin nature wrestling with us every day, we have the filling of the spirit. We have um, the ability to walk in the spirit now and then projecting forward to the future. When this body dies and I'm given a new body, a glorified body, more like Jesus's glorified body, that I will not even be tempted anymore. And so that's the that's the future. My condition right now is still a struggle and a battle, but my future is is uh, something I'm really looking forward to because I'd rather not be tempted with sin. Uh, that's, that'd be really great, you know, because yeah. like you, like everybody watching, I'm tempted every day and I can walk in the spirit and I can choose to do that, but I'm tempted every day. So uh, Cain had the ability to not kill his brother, but he was never going to live a life without sin because that's the state of mankind. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think we actually went through all the questions and great. I really appreciate you just answering some of these questions and I hope that everyone listening could learn. I learned a lot. So I really appreciate you taking the time, Mike. Yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was fun to do it, Zach. And hey, I appreciate, you know, you just threw up this Twitter poll. And um, the crazy thing is, it what you did caused a lot more people to be aware of my ministry, which was letting them be blessed and ministered to by the video content that I've, you know, worked really hard to put up online. And I just thought that was a really neat side effect. I, I definitely didn't deserve to beat probably hardly anybody I beat in the competition. Um, but it was, a uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun and it created a lot of awareness. Um, and that's, that's really neat because you guys just, uh, it just kind of happened, you know? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I really didn't expect it to blow up like that. I mean, I went to bed one night and then I look at my Twitter notifications, usually there's like five, 10 things. There's, I just keep scrolling down. There's like a hundred of them. I was like, wow, what happened? And then I mean, it took root. And I think it's awesome how God used, uh, small fun little apologist march madness tournament and turn it into something great that promoted many ministries including your own so i think yeah. it's awesome yeah pretty cool man good stuff definitely so i mean thank you for the time and to everyone listening if you haven't subscribed to mike winger make sure you do he puts out some awesome stuff and you'll learn a lot from it so yeah yeah and you can subscribe to zach's channel too here in apologetics he doesn't even know for sure what he's doing next but you won't know unless you subscribe right <laughs> yeah definitely all right so i think that's where we're in so to everyone listening hope you have a blessed day